Recovery On Air, the official podcast of Crossroads Addiction Rehabilitation. Candid discussion about addiction and recovery with the people who have lived it, along with input from experts on the journey from struggle to triumph. Laugh, cry, and be inspired. And now, your hosts of Recovery On Air, Donna Alexander and Beth Mercado. Welcome to Recovery On Air, the show in which we work to break the stigma against addiction by talking about it. I'm one of your hosts, Beth Mercado. And I'm your other host, Donna Alexander. Today we have a very special guest with us in the studio, Jay Dow, the founder of Sober Motor Company. Welcome. Hello. How are so you guys doing? glad you're here. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Yeah. So I'm going to start it right out of the gate. I have to hear your how I got sober story. Will you share that with us? Like what happened? Yeah. Um, the condensed version would be I relapsed for five years. Um, was a real estate broker working at the Rhythm Room, bartender. I worked there for 10 years uh, as a bartender, sound guy. Um, and what I could do at the Rhythm Room was drink at work as a sound guy. And what I couldn't do is wake up the next day and flip my life into real estate. Mm. And um, so I made some money in real estate and deals that just fell in my lap when I was actually working at the Rhythm Room. I got a check for Twenty-seven thousand dollars. Sold some land once, and mm-hmm. then uh, about two months later, I got a check for thirty-five thousand dollars. And um, for a bartender, alcoholic, um, man, that was a godsend. Woo-hoo! Even even though I was atheist at the time, <laughs> and um, <laughs> you know that money falling into my life, that was probably I was about thirty-five, thirty-six, maybe. Yeah, thirty-six, and uh, I got that money, but to investment properties and thought I'd kind of arrived in the world finally because I had a little money in the bank. And um, I just kind of lived off that money for the next two years. And, and then I woke up one day with no money and nothing left to pawn. And I did what every, I think, alcoholic or drug addict does when they're completely out of options. I called my mom crying and <laughs> she drove me to crossroads. You know, I didn't know anything about recovery. I was atheist. Didn't know, didn't care, couldn't care less about getting sober. And um, and so I relapsed for the next five years. The only reason why I ever lived at Crossroads because I was homeless. Mm. And um, five years of that, I was homeless in a Maverick house. And my, I was a month sober. And my stepmom, um, who was my other mother for 32 years, suddenly passed away. And uh, they had me do a eulogy for my mom and... After I did the eulogy for my mom, I um, had the had a burning bush moment. And what I got out of doing that eulogy in rehab was I'm a good son. And I haven't had a drug or a drink since. That's been nine years. My sobriety date's February 15, 2012. Congratulations. Mm. Yay! So for those people who are listening and do not quite understand the burning bush, would mm-hmm. you care to elaborate on that for us, please? Uh, burning bush moment is... It's a lot like smoking crystal meth. It's a burning bush moment is a complete rush of ease and comfort. Like, 
Everything's okay. But I experienced that stone cold sober, and I'd never had that experience before. Nice. So when you're talking about that you relapsed for five years, you mean you went to Crossroads and off and on you relapsed, or you went to Crossroads and then relapsed for five years and went into Maverick? I um, moved into Crossroads for the first time in 2007, which seems like about 3,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and And for the next five years, I was either in Crossroads, jail, um, any sober living rehab state situation where a drug addict or alcoholic with no money can move in. And I'd move into these facilities and get a job or set up a situation with a woman and split. And, you know what I mean, end up in jail uh, and come out of jail homeless and run over to Crossroads and beg my way back in. Um, And then so I went homeless in 2009. So I had the same sponsor for relapsing for five years. So in 2012, when I got sober, February 15th, um, February, March, April, May of 2012, I picked up up my very first four-month sober chip. I'd been in recovery five years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I did 30, 60, 90 days for, and then relapse and, you know, bounce out of recovery. Cause I just never thought I belonged in recovery. The thing that was amazing to me, you know, cause I thought I'd been somebody when I got here. I, you know, before real estate, I played in a pro rock band. I played with a lot of famous people. Um, and, um, that didn't work out at 29. I got a real estate license, started selling land and making money and, I hit recovery, and the thing that blew me away about recovery was I'd be in meetings and being sober living around my sponsor and his buddies, and I had never seen so many unlucky people centralized in one spot because I'd hear everybody's stories, and I'd just be sitting around. You know, I never moved into any facility or crossroads as a alcoholic. I never checked in as a drug addict or a broken man. I just moved in as a judge. And I just judged all the losers that I lived (laughs) with. I judged the loser staff at Crossroads that ended up saving my life. You know, I just judged it. I was like, man, I am not one of you people. (laughs) So what was that turn? Where did you realize you are one of those people? When I got through my mom's death. is You know, it all just like snap of a finger. It all made sense. And then I moved back into Crossroads. So... You know, Chris Riley was the coordinator, and he let me move in there for years, in and out, and, um, you know, yelling, screaming, uh, you know. But Chris Riley saved my life, literally. If, if, if um, a lot of people will help me get sober. I mean, it takes a village to, um, you know, get an alcoholic or a drug addict sober, but Chris Riley... Um, if it wasn't for Ed P at Maverick House, the director that had me do the eulogy for my mom and for Chris Riley, I would not be sober. You know, he's one of those, a lot of people helped me get sober, but Chris Riley drove me to Maverick House as a coordinator. I was living at Crossroads for a week. They let me move in for a week because I had to go to IOP and stuff. And then, um, Chris Riley drove me to Maverick House. It was a funny story about Chris Riley. I... <laughs> at Crossroads East, you know, um, if your meeting card was messed up, if there was any error on your meeting card, um, when Chris was um, the coordinator, he would call you in the office at like 5 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. right? And um, so the day I'm going to Maverick House, I've been at Ma- uh, Crossroads for a week, and um, 
one of the night managers comes and grabs me. He's like, Riley wants to see him. Like, dude, I'm going to um, Maverick House, the inpatient rehab for a month. Like, he's driving me. I'm, we're not leaving till nine. That's four hours from now. He's like, no, he wants to see you right now. And um, so I go in there, and he was looking at my meeting card, and it said, like, you know, whatever, 4 o'clock meeting probably, 4 o'clock rush hour. And then there was hash marks, like, which stands for, you know, 4 o'clock rush hour, and then hash marks. And he's like, what's all these lines? There's not even a meeting here. And I was like, well, those mean the same meeting. Well, before we got that happened, I was like, what, what, why am I here? We're leaving at 9 o'clock. He's like, yeah, but I want to talk to you about your meeting card. Like, what's with these hash marks? I'm like, bro, I'm going to rehab and – you know, four hours. Like, I know, but let's talk about this card. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so anyways, I love that guy. He, yes, absolutely. He was strict on that. Yeah. Chris Riley is a special guy. <laughs> um, yeah. So tell us all about Sober Motor Company. What is it and what do you? what is it all about? It is my band, I guess. I'm a one-man band. Um, but I started... So at Maverick House, when you're a year sober, you can go back in and talk to, you know, the patients. And when I was there, my therapist, she would have on Fridays uh, what she called music group. So she'd bring in uh, radio and, and you could write songs that you wanted her to bring in. And she'd listen to them if the lyrics were approved or whatever. And so it was like a therapeutic thing and um, it was recovery based. And so she'd play a song. And then we'd share, you know, talk about it, you know. And so, and you could also sing a song if you wanted to, like just acapella. And so, anyways, so when I was a year sober, I was actually a year and two months sober, I called her and um, I was like, hey, I'm sober a year, you know, um, can I come in? Um, She's like, yeah, you can come in, whatever. And I was like, you know, I have some songs. um, Instead of just like speaking, I have like songs about recovery. Could I just come in and sing those for like music group? She's like, yeah, all right, whatever. So I went in, and um, I was a year and two months sober, and I played this song called I wrote called uh, Pawn Shop Wedding Ring, and um, I played this song A Mother's Love, and this song These Things, and I don't know what other song I played, but anyways, the first song that I played, um, half the room was crying, uh-huh. and. I mean, I'd been playing music my whole life, but I was 42 when I got sober, so I was 43 at the time, and I sang that first song, and half the room was like, not just a little choke, like, people were sobbing, and I was like, man, you know, um, I just knew how powerful it was. Yeah, you moved some people. Yeah, and um, she wrote me a letter uh, that day, and... um, um, I still have the letter, uh, but that's when I realized, like, wow, this is something really special. So it's been an interesting journey with it, um, you know, because I'm a musician at heart, and you're always looking for, I think, approval from the world. You know, it's uh, I'm not a kid anymore, um, but I think as a musician, you're just always like kind of looking to be validated because music is such a personal piece of who you are and you know really putting yourself out there um and that's the amazing thing about sober motor company is i only play in drug rehabs jails and prisons oh wow and i go in and sing and somebody always cries like even on a prison yard where there's no crying they cry so it's really heavy um 
and uh, finally I've gotten, you know, I'm sober nine years. I've been doing it eight years now. Um, and it's been a journey because in the beginning, no one would let me in. They're like, you're not a licensed therapist. You're mm-hmm. not a licensed music therapist. So, you know, we cleared those hurdles. And, um, you know, now, I mean, I film. We film workshops. We film workshops with Crossroads. We f- I film in jail. We're f- getting ready to film in prison. It's um, The cool thing about volunteering um, is facilities will let you do things they normally won't let you do if you're an employee. <laughs> right. 100%. So it's so awesome. Like, um, my wife um, is real successful in business, and, um, I mean, I've learned so much from her about grace and getting off my own channel <laughs> and dealing with people and facilities and Department of Corrections and the Sheriff's Department that let us in the jails and if it wasn't for my wife, I mean, I would have screwed all this stuff up years ago, just being a you know musician. Uh, but it's it's just a special, special thing, um, Sober Motor Company, because I know who my audience is. And before recovery, just being a, a normal musician, like musicians want to connect with their audience, and I don't know. I don't know any musicians, um, famous or not famous, that can walk into a room of people who've never heard any of their songs and start singing a song and half the room's crying. Or at least a few people are, you know? So it's a real special thing. It's something that they can relate to and feel deep down that uh, there's a connection there that's hard to come by. Yeah, and that's the powerful thing. I've been doing it so long now, I just come to rely upon it. you know, the guys or women, you know, sitting in the back of rehab, sitting in the back of the chairs on a prison yard, looking at me like, oh, who's this guy think he is? Like, Kid Rock wannabe, like, <laughs> you know, whatever, like this clown um, are usually the people that are by the end are crying the hardest, mm. you know. And it's an interesting thing, too, because I don't kick people out of the workshop. Um, I rarely get resistance, got resistance, um, at Arcadia, uh, two weeks ago, Mm. but, um, it's, it's another thing, like, it just, the music grabs everybody's attention, and, um, it's just a heavy experience, um, but, you know, like, over the years, there's only been, and, and, I mean, I've been doing this for eight years, I don't know how many... You know, I'm in front of, when we're up and running with volunteering and the people that pay me and all that, I mean, I'm in front of over 10,000 newcomers a year with Silver Motor Company. And um, over the last eight years of doing this, literally, I've had like three situations where there's an issue with someone's trying to be a little disruptive in the, you know, and I get it, you know, in early recovery, we take everything as an attack, Mm. you know? You know, I understand that, and um, but it's you know I'm an alcoholic, and of you know the thousands, tens of thousands of people I've performed in front of in the last eight years with Sober Motor Company in drug rehabs, jails, and prisons. There's three times people have kind of given me a little bit of slack or resistance in it, and the reason why I know that is because I'm alcoholic and I only hold on to the bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? We'll let all that good stuff go before we're going to hold on to those three that were bad. (laughs) 
So how did you actually get into the prisons? What kind of a process was that? Mm. Well, I've gotten in a couple of different ways. I, um, we did a documentary um, for Maricopa Reentry Center. I don't know, about 25-minute, 30-minute documentary. Uh, Maricopa Reentry Center, have you heard of it? Mm-hmm. It's an inpatient rehab on a prison yard right. up where um, the juvenile facility is, Adobe Mountain. There's a, a prison yard set empty for years um, and they opened that up as an um, inpatient, 90-day inpatient drug rehab for um, male in, um, men who are on parole. Um, and if they violate by getting drunk or high, or, um, instead of sending them back to prison, they put them on this prison yard, this yard for 90 days. And so uh, a friend of mine who did eight years in prison total, was the first former inmate that Arizona Department of Corrections hired. So he was volunteering out there, and then he got hired. And he was working on that drug yard. And um, so we did a documentary of that, what was going on there, because they started it in Tucson, and this is the second one. And, And that's how I met, you know, kind of the top brass of... DOC because we had them in our little documentary that we did for free. And again, that's the great thing about volunteering, you know, because if I were for DOC, they wouldn't <laughs> let me, yeah. you know, film it. But, right. but, um, but anyway, so, you know, and that's another thing like now we're getting ready to load the um, inmate tablets with all this. I film all this recovery stuff. I have a speaker meeting at the Salvation Army every Monday night and I film the speakers and send the video down to Florence Prison. Um, and so, like, all the videos on my YouTube channel play for 10,000 inmates every day on closed circuit t- TV. Right. So at Florence Prison and I'm in prison, I think it's 13 yards, all the videos on my YouTube channel play down there. So they, I send them down there, and they pull them off the YouTube channel on a private link. So I've been, you know, filming recovery stuff and sending it in the prisons for... I don't know, three, four years now as well. So it's just cool. Like, um, there's no bigger compliment to me or deep connection when someone runs up to me in a meeting or even on the street and says, hey, man, I watched you in prison. Yeah. You know, it's so, um, and it's it happens a lot, you know, because a lot of people are getting sober and coming out of prison and then they're in our, in our community. Has anyone ever told you, like, you changed my mind or you changed my heart through that song. I, Oh yeah. I mean, all yeah. the time, you know, it's, that's awesome. It used to yeah. happen at flower on a weekly basis. Yeah. <laughs> now he'd come there. So when you would come and there would be certain times that you were going to be there. And I would tell the, the people that were in charge of the groups, always make sure that I know in advance mm-hmm. because that day we knew the office was going to be full. People were going to have stuff that, that came up that needed to be dealt with, although you do a lot of that at the mm-hmm. end of your mm-hmm. presentation as yeah. well, kind of help them walk through stuff. But yeah. man, it was so impactful that it was like one of those times this shame and guilt packets and when Jade yeah. outcome. Make sure <laughs> I know when that's yeah. happening because it's gonna be a very emotional evening. Yeah, that's where we met you, mm-hmm. Flower. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. So, yeah. She's right. a flower celebrity. 
that. I love that child. place. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'd definitely always be a flower child. Yeah. I was, um, flower is always powerful, um, facility, you know, because you were there, Sammy was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just been amazing people. Didi. Yeah. Doe, yeah. Didi. Um, and that's another thing with Sober Motor Company. It is, um, it is, I, don't, I can't say the word litmus. Is that litmus? What's the litmus test? What's the, I don't know. There's, Sounds kind of familiar. I'm not anyways, really sure what that like, is. <laughs> the thing with Silver Motor Company is um, it really exposes if it's a good treatment program or not. It's, it, it just does, you know what I mean? And so um, over the years of, um, you know, some programs are stronger than others, but Crossroads is always strong. They always, always cry in Crossroads like when I play. Because they feel safe. I think that's one of the things that when you go to a place and there's mm-hmm. not much emotion evoked from what you do, yeah. then I feel, just me, mm-hmm. and of course I'm a crossroads person through me, and through, yeah. that they don't feel safe enough to share their innermost yes. pain and vulnerability yes. and all of that stuff. So, so true. And in, in that you can't, um, and it's easy to fall through the cracks in rehab and treatment. You know, especially if you if you don't get on the radar, just be quiet, do your homework, hang out, clean your do your chores. Like it's easy. I it was easy for me to always stay off the radar in treatment and just get out. And um, but Crossroads um, <sighs> dig. You know, they dig into you. And um, the fact that you know so many people came through the program. It's Crossroads is the perfect storm for healing because the clinical piece, so many people came up, were former residents. You know, I mean, when I'm at Crossroads, my first thing out of my mouth is like, you know, Jay Dow, um, Sober Motor Company is my band. Uh, Sobriety dates February 15, 2012. Um, I moved out of here eight and a half years ago. Like Saturday, I play, you know, on Saturdays at Crossroads facilities. Last Saturday, I'm like, I moved out of here eight and a half years ago. You know, I've been in these seats. I know how to set up like at East, every chair in that meeting hall, because I did it for five years. I know how to clean the grill. <laughs> I know how to clean the grill at East. I clean the bathrooms. I figured it out one time, like roughly in relapsing in five years and moving in and out a zillion times. I cleaned the Crossroads bathroom like three and a half, four months <laughs> like over the years because wow. you know, it was two weeks at a time. It's a lot of bathroom cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to, let's talk a little bit and let's clarify for just a second because yeah. we're talking about moving in and out of Crossroads. Mm-hmm. So prior to 2013, Crossroads was a level four transitional living facility, which oh, was yeah, a little bit different, it was different than it is now because now we are a level two residential treatment facility. Mm-hmm. So... And that's how I started at Crossroads in 2010. We were that transitional living facility, and things were different but the same. I mean, we Mm -hmm. still have accountability and all of those type of stuff, but now we have the actual evidence-based programming that makes it a little bit different. So when you were kind of moving in and out, it was that transitional living facility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, and it was old school, you know, AA, old school recovery um, they give you a couple of days to kind of detox, let me have three right. days, and um, and then it was get a job, get a sponsor, go to a meeting every day, get your card signed, and um, you know if your if your card was wasn't signed, it was three days. You had to be off property. A lot of guys would go sleep at the park and come back. Um, I know I did that, and um, you know it was just 
it was old school AA, and I needed to get I needed to get sober under that. I needed to be um, told things by staff members that you know it's just old school. Like you need to stop using your mom, bro. Like how old are you? You're 38 years old. That your mom just brought your folded laundry and gave you <laughs> cigarettes and change for the soda machine. Like, um, you know, like that's what was said to me. You know, I mean, what do you say to that? Right, and that's and that was old school crossroads. It was, it was. I um one time on a Sunday, I'd been homeless drinking downtown for a week, and cops came in and busted up our little circle there at Circle K. Drink. I come around the corner and like everyone's being on against the wall, and I just like whoop. (laughs) Went went and got on the bus. We've been drinking out there all morning. uh, Besides Circle K, winning, and um, I got on the bus and I went up the crossroads. And I had a um, pint of vodka in my shorts, and how Greg Halverson was the, um, you know, night manager living in the yep. back house, and uh, Richard Kerr. And so I was sleeping on the basketball court at East. I'd taken my tennis shoes off, and I was, you know, sleeping on them with the pillow and <laughs> had the vodka. I'd been drunk for a week, homeless, and... And they woke me up, and 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 Halverson um, poured out my um, pint of vodka, which gave me a resentment instantly <laughs> when I found out who had done it. And um, so that was like people were stepping over me to get into the eleven o'clock meeting, mm-hmm. the huge eleven o'clock yes. meeting. And my sponsor showed up, and like these people are huddled around me and stuff. And my sponsor was like, "Get away from him!" He's like, "Get up, get in this meeting," and. Um, <laughs> but I didn't end up in the meeting. I went to the park, and and um, and so I came. They said, you know, Halverson said, go sleep it off at the park and come back and talk to Riley tomorrow. And so I came back the next morning, slept the park. I kicked out of there, and I came back the next morning, and um, and Chris Riley laid into me like, Ooh. dude, he's like, if you ever come on this property drunk like that and pull out again, I will personally call the cops on you. Like, and he's like, get your, you know, up to the MRU lay down and sleep it off and you know like he laid into me but i needed to be talked to like that you know absolutely that's crazy so i want to go back to something that you said that stuck with me um about when you go into different facilities and sometimes you get resistance and you said that you understand that um people in early recovery take everything as an attack yes um, so tell me a little bit about what you're talking about in your songs. Um, you know, is it making people in early recovery feel like called out or what is it that they're connecting with that, that makes them kind of give you that resistance? Well, it's only happened literally like three times. Um, once it was on, um, that prison yard, you know, a guy, because people are feeling feelings they haven't felt in years. Oh. Yeah. Is the thing about music is because if I walk in, you know, I do a, an hour long work music workshop and I just like it was just an hour of talking. And I say this in all my groups. I'm like, hey, you know, the thing about music is music hits us at who we are. Music hits us where truth hits us. Music hits us where dope hits us. And um <sighs> And if I'm in here just talking for an hour, you can block it out. You know, you can think about the past. You can think about the future. You can think about her. You can think about him. Think about them. And like an hour of recovery has gone by and I haven't even been here. But music is much harder to block that out, especially like a song I have called Mother's Love. 
you know, a mother's love. And um, I was at a crossroads facility a couple of weeks ago, and um, like this kid like had a snot bubble breakdown. You know what I mean? Where I had to like set the guitar down and go over and say, "Hey, man, hug me." You know, his mom died, and because um, he just couldn't stay sober, he couldn't help her not die. You know, she's like, call 911 or whatever, you know what I mean? And um, and he couldn't. And, um, and, you know, when I say in my workshops, I say, um, you know, the reason why it's so impossible to get an alcoholic or a drug addict sober um, is because um, of the guilt, shame, and remorse that we're carrying in early recovery. You know, we got to carry that until we can get through the steps and get some ease and comfort from that. And um, and my songs are just about my life. I was a horrible son for many years to both two mothers and a father. And um, I sponsor horrible sons. I mean, there are no horrible sons. There are only amazing sons who be- unconsciously believe they're horrible. And uh, I needed alcohol and drugs to um, blot that out. And so does everyone else. Um, and so... You know, I say that a lot in my workshops, too. Um, I say, you know, the reason why it's so impossible to get an alcoholic or drug addict sober is because you're a leader. You're not a follower, you're a leader. And um, everybody in this room sells fast talk to slow-thinking people. That's another reason why it's so impossible to get us sober, because it doesn't matter who you put me in front of. I, One of my you know closest friends is a super famous dude, right? Um but it doesn't matter if you put me in, in, in front of my famous buddy, if you put me in front of Lee Piosky, who runs Crossroads, you put me in front of uh, anybody who's running Department of Corrections, the Sheriff's Department, these meetings that I have with these, you know, a room full of, like, super successful people. It does, at nine years sober or nine days sober, about 15 minutes in the conversation, I think I know more than everybody in the room. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Still, yeah. and I gotta keep that in check, man. Especially when people are like, "Oh, hey, Jay Dow, you know, Sober Motor Company. Oh, can I get your autograph?" Blah blah blah. Like, I have to keep that stuff in check. It's um, my a friend of mine, a famous guy, managed famous bands, and he came to uh, Durango Jail with me and my wife uh, one time when I did a workshop, and um, we got done, and you know, it was like twenty, thirty guys lined up to get my autograph. And my famous buddy, the manager of the band, stand beside me, and um, and so I would sign a, sh- you know, sign an autograph, and then give my phone number, and and we got done, and I said to my buddy, I said, the difference between me and your famous bands is that your famous artists don't give their phone number with their autographs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and he was like, but I can't believe you just gave out your number to like thirty inmates, <laughs> and uh, I was like, here's the thing, bro, nobody's gonna call. Mm-hmm. And one dude did. I was going to say, what happens when they do? Right. But no, you know, one day I tried to get him sober, but, you know, I tried to sponsor him. But they don't call, unfortunately. And why do you give the number out? Because I want to help people get sober. Even if it's just the one. Right. I give Changing my... lives one person at a time. Yeah. I answer every phone call that comes in on my phone because it's part of my living amends because I didn't answer my phone for years. Mm. You know, family, friends wondering if I'm dead, jail again, 
you know, where I'm at. So I answer every call that comes in on my phone. And I, I have to because I have, you know, I, when you sponsor people, you kind of sponsor people that go through the same thing as you. I was homeless for three years. Um, I've been to jail five times. And I sponsor guys that relapse, lie, and go to jail and homeless. And so I have calls that come in all over the country. You know, I've had guys call me from other states. And um, so I answer calls. You know, I think an important thing that I keep hearing you say the same thing in different kinds of ways is that in recovery, we never graduate. Mm-mm. We do not graduate. Mm-mm. And um, you and I were talking before the podcast about how that onion keeps getting peeled back and back and back and how we continually heal that. And I believe that a lot of that is done through the steps. Yes. And how we work those and how we put those into our lives. So tell us a little bit about how that works for you. Like uh, you already told us about a living amends, which is an Mm -hmm. amends that we can't necessarily go to somebody and say sorry. Yes. So we do some kind of an action to keep that Mm -hmm. going all the time and keep that forefront in our mind. Yeah. I, um, so when I made amends to my mom, my stepmom, my sponsor acted like my mom and we went to the Nice. Park down by Crossroads. I, I think I was about three months sober when I started making amends. Um, and so, whatever, I made amends. And, you know, I'm sorry I yelled F you at the airport when you and dad kicked me out of the house. I'm sorry I didn't go to your funeral. I'm sorry I was stealing money off your dresser when you were dying of cancer. Um, right? And we did role played it out. And then we burnt the letter. And then my sponsor said, okay, cool. So that's, you know, amends. But um, now we're going to get into living amends. And and what he said was, um, so I want you, how you pay your mother back is by treating women with respect. And so he said the way you um, treat women is the way you honor both your mothers. And so I started treating women with respect, which in the beginning was real easy. Just stay away from them, you know, <laughs> stop pestering them. And, um, but in my thought life, I started treating women with respect, which was a big deal for me. And, um, you know, I just... And acting like a good son was also part of the living amends. And so, you know, I started acting like a good son. I was on the bus, city bus still. Um, so I'd get to a bus stop. I'd clean up the bus stop. I Every day, um, you know, I would, would get off the bus. I'd say, hey, who wants the, a full-day bus pass? And get my bus pass away on the bus. Um, so I started acting like a good son to pay my mom back, both my moms. And, um, treating human beings like family. That's what I do with my sponsees who've lost their children. Men sponsor men, women sponsor women. So all my guys, you know, haven't taken care of their kids or haven't paid child support, seen their kids. I, and I tell them the same thing, like start acting like a good father because we want to, we want. The past is the past, right? Desperate people do desperate things. That covers the past for all of us. I, anyways, I did. Desperate people do desperate things. We're not desperate today in recovery. But so what I work with my guys on is being a good father, you know, the, and the truth. The truth is the message in recovery is there's nothing wrong with me. Yes. That's, that's the only message out of the big book of recovery. There's nothing wrong with me. And I experienced that when my, I did the eulogy for my mom. Because I was atheist and I was whatever, but I couldn't deny that experience. Um, and so I just started acting like a good son, like my sponsor told me, you know. And, and on down the line, I realized it wasn't an act. It's actually who I am, you know. And um, 
I'm so grateful to be sober because, right? man, it's recovery works 100% of the time, but you got to do the work. Yes. It's the only reason why it doesn't work. And, yes. and, the, and the work is just rigorous honesty. You just, but for a guy like me, I can't be honest with you because if I'm honest with you, you won't stand beside me. Right. And I think, too, that one of the biggest lessons for me is, so I did the whole good daughter thing, too, mm-hmm. through some direction from my sponsor as well, um, had some kind of issues and try to be the best daughter you can be. And if that means sending cards mm-hmm. instead of calling because you're mm-hmm. not there yet, send cards. And I did that mm-hmm. for a long time. And I was pretty darn religious about that. So when I did get to see my dad, you know, a little bit scary, a little bit uncomfortable, but I was able to ask for a hug and he mm. gave it mm. willingly. But I think one of the things that has been uber important for me as well is those resentments. You know, being the best daughter that I can be regardless of what he's doing. You know, just how we make our amends. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you make the amends and you don't say, but you did this and you did that. Right. So I think that was a huge lesson for me too. Have you had experiences like that with holding on to resentment and making it difficult for you to make your amends? Uh, n- not really in the sense that, you know, I mean, I've been at this thing for a while, um, recovery. I've been living this way for nine years and I just can't stay mad. It's literally like drinking gasoline right. and not throwing up or I just can't handle that level of toxicity in my system. Um, I, you know, I would love to be able to get through a day where I don't, I have yet to, in nine years of sobriety, not gotten through a whole day where I didn't do what I'm getting ready to tell you I do. <laughs> life's, my life's just happening, right? Life's a neutral experience. Um, but life's happening, my life's happening, and I take a situation that has nothing to do with me, make it about me, insert injury, and then react to it like it's the truth. Right? And I, because I take... The big book says um, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we believe is the root of our problems, right? Root of our troubles. And so um, because selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of my problems, I may not be much, but I'm all I think about, I take everything personal, but really negative things personal because you tell me how great I am. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's all right. You're great too. But you tell me how bad I am. And I will hurt from that much longer than what you said. Like, I take that to heart. Yep. Mm-hmm. And um, I got to keep an eye on that, keep a handle on that, because if I hold on to hurt long enough, I know where to go get ease and comfort from it. Exactly. Circle K, any street corner. Prize. <laughs> right. Dope, man. Like, it's um, so... Um, in recovery done right is a better high than alcohol and drugs. Absolutely. Or I wouldn't be here. So, Jay, I'm dying to hear a song. Would you play oh, for okay. us? Mother's Love. Push and I shove 
Absolutely beautiful. That was amazing. Now, that was about your mother that passed, right? 
or both um, mothers, really. It's both mothers. I first started writing in a, um, I wrote that, started writing that song before my stepmother passed away. I was writing about my natural mother when um, the whole driving me around with a cast on her leg and um, cussing her out. Um, and so it's about both my moms, you know, the second verse about, you know, I yelled F you at, uh, screamed it at my um, stepmom and dad when they kicked me out of their house a year before she passed away. And so the second verse of that song is talking about, um, <clears throat> you know, I screamed at you instead of whispering goodbye. Very touching. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so as you work through your workshops, now that's part of your workshop, right? Yeah, yeah, I do that song. That song gets everybody. And so then you have a few different songs that you do, and then you talk to the residents afterwards to try to help them process and we digest, actually, right? We do it song by song. So mm. I do a song, and then um, we pass out tickets. You know, I'm a manipulator. <laughs> So, you know, we do drawings. I give away so motor company hats and shirts everywhere we go. Um, we can't do it in the prisons, but um, we pass out, you know, ticket. And everyone's like, what's the ticket for? I'm like, oh, we're going to do a drawing, but they're also for shares. Um, you know, and so if nobody shares, we'll draw a ticket for a share. And you have to share because if you don't share, you can't win the hat. Right, because the ticket. Mm-hmm. So we're so good at manipulating. <laughs> we'll find a way to get people to do what we want, one yeah. way or another. And it's not always negative. That was kind of a positive thing. Yeah, yeah a little shove in the right direction. <laughs> so I usually hand the. So you know, I use a microphone, a little sound system. I take in with me, just a little speaker, and um, you know, I always pick the after a song. I just pick call on the person that's crying. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes. So Absolutely. we rarely have to draw tickets. Right. So I know that just recently we have been so blessed at our facilities that we finally got to bring you back in Mm. to start doing. And we were talking previously about how hard this last year for people in recovery has been. Yes. um, And how enlightening it is to start being able to get back into some things, to go to some meetings. So share with us just a little bit about how this last year has been for you. I know you definitely had some trials during this last year. I did, um, you know, I'm in the fortunate position where I don't have to work a job. You know, my wife was real um, successful, and, um, I mean, we kind of retired like six years ago. Nice. Uh, yeah, that's great. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, we don't watch television. We don't even have cable. I mean, we have internet, but, you know, we try to I try to watch a movie. But it's like 20 minutes of, like, f- you know, flicking through everything. It's like, all right, whatever. Um, I just don't watch television. I watch so much TV in rehabs and homeless facilities and jail and I don't care about TV. Uh, it's a weird thing getting sober. Um, but anyway, so, you know, the last year I've just been at home, me and my wife and my dog. And, um, you know, I love my wife. I love my dog. It's, I love my life. But if you lock me in a beautiful home for a year with my best friend, wife and my best friend dog eventually i start thinking i'm living with two enemies mm-hmm. right and um <laughs> you know that's yeah. so it's um two times over the last year my wife said do you need to get an apartment to um get a change in perspective mm-hmm. not like we're gonna split up mm-hmm. but a change in perspective and um no, 
you know i didn't i needed to change my perspective right but um um you know it's so it's just tough man like i my sponsor um is sober 16 years but he relapsed at two at 20 years and two months sober so my sponsor had 20 years and two months he's a biker in prescott and he got blasted at, at a biker concert at 20 years and he drank for a year and now he's got 16 years sober so my re, my sponsor relapsed at 20 years wow. and he hadn't sponsored a, a, a guy or been in an AA meeting in seven years when he relapsed. What COVID taught me is there is no way in the world I would last seven years and stay nope. sober. Mm. It, no. No way. I, I can't. Hopefully the world doesn't lock down again because I've had my COVID shots, but I cannot be locked away from recovery again. I, I got to be in front of people because uh, if the world locks down again, I will die of COVID or untreated alcoholic drug addiction. Right. I agree. I got to be face to face. And that's what I think we've learned. Um, Even with Zoom, because I've done the Zoom meetings and absolutely they had their place in this whole yes, thing. In they the were instrumental yeah. in a lot of people's recovery and stuff like that. But I am finding my solace right now in being able to go back to meetings and see people and you know, we've talked about this a lot, Beth and I, about these pandemics that have just collided, mm-hmm. the pandemic mm-hmm. of addiction and Ooh. the pandemic of COVID. Great point. And, you know, in recovery, go to meetings, stay in the middle of the herd, reach out to other people, go do things with sober people, blah, blah, blah. COVID, don't leave your house. Mm. Don't go around anybody. You know, mm. they're so polar opposite. Yeah. One of them is not going to do well. And I don't think we've seen the carnage yet. Yeah, um, from this epidemic collision. No, not in our world, no. You know, and, yeah. and I'm sure you can understand this too, is that I envision people having their computers at home and they're there and they're working. However, their glass is not water. It's mm-hmm. whatever drink they enjoy mm-hmm. yes. and they might pass out a little bit in the afternoon. They wake back up and they work some more. So they're getting their work done in quotations, mm-hmm. but now they got to go back to the office. So mm-hmm. now around one o'clock in the afternoon, we're shaking. Yeah, yeah, we are. And we're sick. Mm-hmm. And so what is going to happen? I mean, I don't think it has even begun that's a great point. in the world of addiction yet. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think it's going to come forward. What kind of advice would you give someone who's in early recovery who um, doesn't isn't really working a program, um, doesn't have a sponsor, but kind of feels like they can do it on their own. Um, if that plan doesn't work out, get a sponsor. You know, it's that's um, what my sponsor does for me at nine years sober. It really just gives me the same answer. Anytime I call him with a problem, which I really don't call him with problems, my life's a fairy tale. If you do recovery right, your life will become a fairy tale because what recovery taught me is that I am never fighting you. I'm always fighting my thoughts about you. Mm. And um, and I've been living in recovery so long enough for this life so long, it's so hard to, for me to lie to myself at that level. Uh, you know, when I got here, I thought you had the power to, cause the way I think and feel. You cut me off in traffic. I'm mad because you don't know how to drive. But what I've learned in recovery is the other person's not discussed. I focus on my side of the street. 
And I'm never upset with the world. I'm upset with my thoughts about the world. So that's why it's so brilliant. I mean, the, the Bill Wilson's an amazing writer, and in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, it says, um, we cease fighting anyone or anything. And the brilliance in that statement is, recovery has helped me stop kicking, recovery has helped me stop fighting myself, mm-hmm. fighting my thoughts about what's going on. Because life really is just a neutral experience. I am judging everything as positive or negative. And when you get sober and you can live the promises and, and get real, um, you get to just experience life for the beautiful journey that it is and not judge it. Like I've yet to be able to get through a day, like I said earlier, and, and, and take some situation, make it about me, add injury, and then react to it like, you know, it's the truth. And um, I've also been, unbe- I've been unable to get through an entire day and not judge what's going on, especially what you're doing, you know. Yeah. And that's the cool thing about a tenth step because I'm skilled at seeing how you are doing life wrong. But a 10-step, I get to like point back like, oh, here's me and what I'm doing wrong. Or you know what I mean? Which is fighting myself. You know, it's so weird. Like my wife said the other day, like, wouldn't it be amazing if human beings defaulted at joy? Mm. Like, man, oh, everything's right. right again. I know. Why does it like, have to default at the negative? Right. You know, like, why does it, wouldn't it be just like, oh, man, it's just, yeah, another happy day. Yeah. How's it going with you? And we're born that way. That's the way kids are. Yes. And then life changes that Smashes as we grow up. Smashes that out of them. Or we help with that perspective. <laughs> yeah, right. As parents, you know, let's yeah. help yeah. this along. This is not right. You didn't do that right. So. Yeah. And, but that's an interesting thing, too, because I really believe I was born with addiction. Because yes. what I've learned is addiction is a, is a calling, not a curse. Yes. You know? And that's why I love being sober and I love community and like what you're talking about zoom the reason zoom doesn't work for me is because meetings don't keep me sober I mean in the beginning of recovery they did it was important I still haven't gotten a nine-year sobriety chip it happened in February um but fellowship does keep me sober it flips because in the beginning like everyone's like just doing fellowship and no program um and like today I know that without fellowship, I will get loaded. Right. I sponsor. I sponsored through this whole thing, and I've always got sponsees in the steps. I have a weekly service commitment. I did that through Zoom with the Salvation Army every week. Like, that's how I was taught to get sober. Get a sponsor. Get through the steps. Sponsor other men. Get a weekly H&I commitment. That's a, a meeting that you take into a facility where they can't go out. So I've been had an H&I commitment for eight years. Um Different, you know, we moved to Prescott. I got an H&I commitment instantly. That's what I was taught because that's where you find sponsees at your H&I commitment. Right. You don't find sponsees in a, at, you know, at the lunch bunch. That's not your meeting. That's, <laughs> right. right? That's, I, I find sponsees at the Salvation Army because I show up every week and everybody asks you to sponsor them because you're there every week. Right. So, um, but I just, I love recovery because of the deep connection that we have and what we have in recovery, it's like um, it's like a sober Amish community. Like we, <laughs> I um, we don't get involved in the things of the world. We don't argue about anything. We don't argue in recovery. It's you know before recovery, I was racist, homophobic, womanizing, selfish, self-centered, lying thief, and um. 
I'm none of those things anymore. I don't have hate in my heart. Right. Which is insane to me. Right. I don't hate. It's an amazing thing. We have been speaking with Jay Dow from Sober Motor Company. This is Donna. And Beth. And if you need some help, reach out to us at www.thecrossroadsinc.org or give admissions a call at 602-263-5242. And Jay, what a pleasure it has been today to talk with you and hear your insight and what you've been able to do with your recovery. I know that it has been inspirational for me, and I'm sure it has been for our listeners. And what a great opportunity to give hope. So thank you, thank you, thank you yeah, from thank the bottom of my heart thank for being both. here. Yeah, thank you. Is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap it up for today? I don't think so. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, don't you, drink, get a sponsor, go to meetings. There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been Recovery On Air, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Recovery On Air, the official podcast of Crossroads Addiction Rehabilitation with Donna Alexander and Beth Mercado. Join us next time as we continue our candid discussions about addiction and recovery. Listen 24-7 anytime to this or any of our shows online at StarWorldWideNetworks.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.